Adventures in time and space told in future tense. All radio is dead. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Look, there comes one of them now. Welcome. My name's Kyle. And I'm Brad. And risen from the coffin, we are the Nosfera Dudes. <laughs> That's my morning DJ. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> hey, man in the box. <laughs> That's right. So, Brad, what movie are we covering uh, on this? Our first of our Christmas or uh, ho- general holiday extravaganza. Yes. <laughs> our, um, our winter extravaganza. <laughs> that's right. It is the holiday season. <laughs> and so we are uh, talking about Black Christmas. That's right. 1974's Black Christmas, produced and directed by Bob Pl- Clark. Bob. I don't know why I flubbed that. Bob Clark. Brad, who is Bob Easiest Clark? Name in the- for anybody well, most- for anybody out there that somehow doesn't know who Bob Clark is, I guarantee you they do, but they might just oh, not yes, realize it. Oh, yeah, you do, especially around this time of year. And it ain't because of Black Christmas. Uh, most, most people, Kyle, would know Bob Clark as the director of a little movie that maybe people out there have seen before. It's possible. A Chris, maybe a maybe on some story. obscure cable station. <laughs> right, right, right. I think they run it somewhere. You know, you might have to, you know, really search for it. But, uh, but yeah, no, he is the director of A Christmas Story. That's right. That's right. The Red Rider BB gun. That's we'll right. shoot your eye out. The movie I think has probably replaced It's a Wonderful Life as the that that marathon movie, right? The, that yeah, the most Christmas watched they do every movie. year. Well, right, they when when we were growing up, it was they used to do the marathons at at Christmas. And so they would run It's a Wonderful Life, you know, 24 20 you know, the 24-hour marathon. And now I don't even I don't think they do that anywhere where they run they run the marathon with a christmas story right right yeah uh it's a wonderful life has taken a back seat you know it's considered a dated uh holiday film christmas film and Hmm. um although i this is just my opinion boys and girls for me um even though i love uh the story of a christmas carol a christmas carol is my favorite story of all time in in all of its various forms, but my favorite Christmas film is "It's a Wonderful Life." Is it? It is. It is. Really? Yeah. Wow. I, I, fell, I don't think I knew that. I fell in love with "It's a Wonderful Life" uh, years ago. I also think getting older and having a family. And things like that. Oh, it, so it, you actually, so it it became your favorite when you 
became a father as an adult as an adult oh, like, as an adult okay yeah my favorite when i was a kid was probably it's a uh was probably a christmas story yeah i mean it's still my it's it's still well obviously um national lampoon's christmas vacation is yep that's another it's a it's a must right everybody everybody watches it at christmas now uh i, I do think movie has to be a hang on your 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 feed is glitching pretty bad oh no <laughs> i think it's probably the wet a little bit of the weather it's raining it's it, like it pouring might be here. it's what well, well we're getting this so so are we and we're getting the these uh the winds with it too so uh, they were warning about power outages. Yeah, so so we'll warn you. I'm not going to try and edit out every time the feed glitches a little bit. We'll just warn you now. The feed might glitch just a little bit now and again. Right. <laughs> I'm not I'm not combing through this one with a t- fine tooth comb or anything. You know? I got you. Got you. Got you. <laughs> but yeah, so Christmas um, no, story. I, yeah. Yeah, I think a, a Christmas story is um, probably my favorite uh, Christmas movie. Um, I, I just think if you, it, when it comes down to it, um, overall, it it encompasses everything that you kind of love about Christmas. And Bob Clark does a great job directing Gene Shepard's. Um, it was a short story, right? Right. It was yeah. It was sort of. Uh, he had a book. It was. Um, uh, I, shoot, I can't, I even actually own it. I don't know where it is right now, but it was mm. like a a conglomeration of essays that he wrote kind of right. in general about his growing up and, um, and Christmas time. It was kind of all revolved around that time period of his childhood growing mm. up in, um, I think he grew up in, a, in Ohio, I think, or Michigan, mm-hmm. one of those Midwestern states uh the only real location i remember is cleveland street that was where cleveland street right that's that where was where it was set yep. and yeah the author um you know he he kind of they put these essays that he wrote for different things magazines etc and put them together in a book and uh and that's what became a christmas story oh brad's and video it- oh the, the your video cut out yeah, yeah, yours did too. But yes, so yes, but, but if 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 audiences still, if if you it, it, audiences, if you guys out there want to know kind of what Bob Clark looks like, if you remember in a Christmas story when the father wins the leg lamp, right? He wins his major award. He wants to try out his major award, right? So he plugs it in and he goes out to the street and he puts it right in the window, like where everybody can see it. And everybody's gathering around the father in the street, looking into the window, looking at this major award. And this kind of bumpkin-y kind of neighbor comes over to him and says, hey, what you got? What you looking at over there? And he's like, well, I, 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 it's, a, it's a lamp. I won it. It's, it's an award. He says and it's an award. He says he won it. That's Bob Clark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is Bob Clark. An, an award. Damn hell, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> 
Yeah, some transplant like con- from the south. Right. I was going to say, like, they're from West Virginia or Kentucky or something. Yeah, so, uh, but the fun part is that we're not here to talk about any of we those great Christmas films. We are not. Uh, we're here to talk about Bob Clark's other stamp on Christmas, That's which right. is 1974's Black Christmas. Black Right. And Black Christmas, it's so weird because um, it's a movie that I think probably the first time I watched it, I kind of, I was watching it after mainly just hearing people like rave about it. You know, people within the horror community, the film community, you know, you see on television sometimes it makes it into some of the lists for people's, Mm -hmm. you know, top whatever horror movies, and especially seasonal horror movies, you know, when you get to talking about horror movies that have, like, sort of a, you know, season gimmick to them, Black Christmas is always going to get mentioned at some point. Sure. But the first time I watched it, I kind of thought, like, I think I was kind of younger, and so I was like, oh, I don't don't know what it, what's the hubbub? (laughs) <laughs> what's, all the, what's all the hubbub here, you know? Because I'm looking yeah. at it from, like, you know, watching Freddy and Jason and all. And I'm it's expecting... Not a, it's not a gory movie. No. It's not a gory movie. No, and it is it is definitely more of a tension-based, yep. shock-based yeah. film. It is mm-hmm. not, uh, for being a slasher, it is a 1974 slasher that is not in the mode of, like... Texas Chainsaw Massacre, one of those, it owes more to the Italian giallo influence of the faceless killer, and you only see, like, sort of these crafted vignettes of murder and psychopathy. Especially, not to not to jump ahead, but especially Mar- Margot Kidder's death. Yes. The- yeah, it really, it really does lend itself more to those types of films Um, which it's kind of then funny that, uh, an actor like John Saxon is in it because John Saxon for a time was very popular in Italy and actually did at least one or two of the Giallo films. Right. Um, so yeah, but then getting older and developing a bigger appreciation for a wider range of genres within horror, Hmm. I grew to really like the film. Mm-hmm. And you know, from our recent watch through of it, uh, you notice things. You begin to notice these little things that um, maybe on first glance, on first viewing, uh, you you maybe don't catch that make it a much more complex and enriching story than what... Well, you would think from what a you Christmas up when you were film. 13 years old, too. Like yeah. the first time you saw it, you're not picking up on all this stuff. So, yeah. like, you have to watch it. You have to get older. You have to have that life experience, kind of gain a different perspective on things, and then rewatch it. And then, you know, um, then you can kind of understand um, the horror, you know, in the, in the movie. So. And I would recommend that to, to any, any movie, like, given there's bad horror films bad there's bad films period (laughs) Mm -hmm. but sometimes if you watch a film and 
you don't like that film, sometimes it can benefit from viewing it another time. Like, like give it a little bit. Yep. Come back to it. Yep. If, if you watch it the second time and you're like, yeah, this is still shit. Especially <laughs> a movie that... But especially a movie that... Um, is usually held in such high regard. So if you if you hear about a movie and it's held in such high regard, and then you're watching, and you're kind of like, I don't I don't get it. I don't understand why, you know, everybody. Maybe I ooh, Kyle, hereditary. Maybe <laughs> I have to watch. Well, you maybe yeah. you have to wait a couple of years, and then I have to wait. I don't know, thirty, forty years. Maybe when I'm eighty, I'll appreciate Halloween three. <laughs> Yeah. Right, because I mean, it's it's, it's possible. It's, it it's held in such high regard, isn't it? <laughs> Anything's possible. Um, so so the film is set around uh, Christmas time. It, mm-hmm. It's set at a college. Originally, it wasn't going to be at a college. It was going to be like t- it was going to be teenage babysitters. It was going to be very similar to Halloween. Halloween, yeah, and. Uh, at some point during the development process, they said, well, we actually would kind of like the girls to be a little bit older. Uh, and I think it really was uh, uh, an issue where I think Bob Clark actually did want to get into some, you know, kind of oddly deeper stuff. He he really, for so to give you a, a little more background, so he made this, he made Christmas Story, he also made Porky's. So, he did Porky's, that's right. So... So to not you, to kill, not to kill your 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 <laughs> thought of Bob Clark yeah. as a director of a Christmas story. Yeah. So you're talking about a guy who has a wide range of interests. Yes, he does. <laughs> Each sure. of these three movies is wildly different from one another. Yes, they are. <laughs> um, but unlike with Porky's, um, it like Black with, Christmas. If you watch, you know, like Black Christmas or a Christmas story. Bob Clark likes to take what would seem to be very simple movies and he somehow makes these kind of, it's like, I don't want to over expound on Bob Clark's skill. He kind of makes a tapestry out of it. He weaves in so much stuff that like, you actually feel like, you know, the people in the film, you know, he might be, I don't know. Is, is he under a little underrated as a director? I think so. I think he probably gets uh, downplayed because his most popular film is A Christmas Story, which is, you know, a, a seasonal... Dire- a one- but a wonderfully made and directed film. Absolutely. Um, but I think he gets downplayed then because then what are his other two big films? Porky's, which is, you know... A, a classic. Ra- it's a classic, but it's a raunchy teen comedy, right? Yep. And the other one is about a psychopath who kills college girls. <laughs> but is another classic. But is another classic. And um, yeah, so it, it's about uh, a sorority house uh, at this college. Um, and it's it's in, they don't really give you a clear idea of where this is supposed to be. But I mean, it is in Canada. It was... Filmed, uh, directed, completely made in Canada. It has a lot of Canadian actors in it. And um, uh, Bob Clark actually co-wrote the the film with a fellow by the name of A. Roy Moore. Um, and the overall story, there's, there's 
a straight up part of it's based on the urban legend of the callers inside the house. We've seen other right. films that play on that idea. The call is sure. coming from inside the house. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a little bit of a disagreement on what the other influences. Some people that worked on the film say it was one thing. Some people say it was another thing. I thought it was a, uh, uh, there was a series of murders um, uh, that Bob Clark read about and based that right. happened around. It happened around. They happened around Christmas, and uh, so he 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 kind of used that he gelled the two together. Right. Well, so basically, like, um, who is it? Uh, Nick Mancuso. Nick Mancuso is actually the the he portrays the the figure you never really clearly see a face or anything nick mancuso is the the figure of the killer nick mancuso eventually went on to become a very well-known director and actor mm-hmm. um he was the he played the ci direct the cia director in under siege mm-hmm. <laughs> casey ryback yep <laughs> um, casey ryback is on this train and Nick Mancuso seems to imply that it was inspired by a fellow by the name of George Webster, who in November 1943 bludgeoned his mother to death and then attacked his brother, sister, and a family friend. That's what he says. He says, oh, I, you know, he was in tight with uh, Bob Clark and, and Roy Moore. And he says that that was a big part of the inspiration because it was like right before the holidays. However, I, I have to side on the, the kind of other side of the thing where other people that worked on the film say it was inspired by a much more uh, recent and up-to-date um, series of killings that were happening in Montreal, Quebec at just before the film got made. And they sound very, very close to the types of things that happen in this film. Uh, It through between 1968 and 1972, there was a fellow by the name of Wayne Bowden who in Montreal, Quebec in a fairly upscale area of Montreal called Westmount, uh, killed five women they were called the westmount murders and he got nicknamed the vampire rapist due to the bite marks he left on the victim's breasts and here's why i think this has to be part of the inspiration much more than this george webster story from the 40s mm-hmm all of the victims, the way the police zeroed in on this guy, Wayne Bowden, was apparently he approached these women through, to have dates as at, like an actual romantic go out on a date scenario. And he lied to all of them and told them his name was Bill, which, as we know in the film, Billy, the killer is named Billy. Right. How you can think that that isn't part of this but this george webster from the 40s who actually only succeeded in killing his mother he only injured the other members of his family i don't see how that lines up with this film yeah 
Yeah, I didn't. I didn't read about that one. I, I, I agree with you. I think it does have to do with those the later series of murders that were happening. Yeah, yeah it, it it's too coincidental, and I mm. don't know where Nick Mancuso got, you know, the idea that it was this other thing. Maybe it came up in a conversation, you know, oh about maybe he was talking with Bob Clark and Roy Moore, and they said, oh. I remember back in the 40s, this thing happened, and it was a big news story, and, you know, it was right around the holidays. But, yeah, the vampire rapist, yeah, I think that's named Bill. I think that's probably our guy. That's probably the guy. Probably the guy. (laughs) I I think if I I whipped off my sunglasses and had a fancy tagline, I think... David Caruso style? Yeah, I think we we just Caruso'd this one. That's right. So, Brad, uh, mm. how does the film start? Do you, do you remember how the film oh, starts? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so um, I actually, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so Bob Clark has kind of a way um, that, that he shot the, the opening scene. Uh, it starts with a shot of the house. And there's um, Carol's playing you know over over the the shot and it's done in a way that's very similar to the shot that the uh, sort of shots that he did in the christmas story it has that same kind of feel to it so you can you can kind of see the similarities there but it's a happy thing it's a party right they're having a little it's a it's a it's a party um but it just like the look of it like just the the style in which he did it and then um basically there's a party going on at the sorority house uh, for the holidays, and um, there's someone outside. So it it starts in that first person, um, which, as we know, view, which is very similar to the opening of Halloween. The opening of Halloween. There's the the opening shot of the house, and then there's you know someone outside walking around and it obviously it turns out to be Michael. Yeah. Looking in the um, windows, looking in the windows and stuff like that. So that's what the killer is doing. And then he finds, uh, the lattice, right? right. That's going up the side of the house and he climbs up and he gets to the attic window and he sneaks into the attic. And that's where he remains kind of, that's his home base for the movie. Yeah. And that's actually one of the, great um i don't want to call it so much a a a gimmick per se it's sort of one of the great conceits of the film is that we as the audience we know where he is the entire film we know (laughs) where this guy is right but no one else knows right he is able to keep his location completely secret Yep. The entire time. And he, and he's multiple times coming in and out of that attic, sneaking down into the house to commit murders and retreating back up into the attic. And no one has any clue. And it's a very convenient attic, right? So it's floored. It's right? spacious. It's, got, it's, it's spacious. Like he could stand up in the attic, you know, it's got this. Um, by the way, why was the the window unlocked? in the attic. I don't know. You know, I think it's one of those things where, um, and not to read too much into it. I think for the most part, you don't expect somebody to break in, to climb all the way to your roof. And, but it, 
it's winter. Like you're just allowing heat to escape the house. Yeah, it was very easily accessed. You know, so it is kind of yeah. It was he climbed up and he just it was just open. So he gets in there and it's like I said, it's this very convenient attic. So like most of the attics that I go into for work are just full of insulation and beams and you know just roof parts and stuff like that. Yeah, this is like Um, a finished animal droppings. Then this this is a nice stand up finished attic. Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah so he gets up there and uh, and and now he's starting to make phone calls. Well, you you see the party and everybody's having a good time and it, and it he, Bob Clark uses the party as a way to introduce all these people, mm-hmm. and you get snippets of their characters and it's a nice way to enter in. It's a little bit like. Um, uh, kind of a, a funny metaphor is uh, for anybody out there that plays Dungeons and Dragons. One of the jokes is always like, "Oh, it starts in a tavern." <laughs> you know, the story starts in a tavern because it's the easiest way to get everybody together and meet everybody. So Bob Clark starts this with a party, and that's mm-hmm. where you get to see uh, the big stars of the film. You get to see Olivia Hussey, um, mm-hmm. who is of. Uh, to, to Romeo and Juliet fame. Romeo and Juliet, and she was the wife of Bill in the television film It, the the Tim mm, Curry yes. It. She was oh, the wife yeah. of Billy that you see at the at the end. He has to like you know snap her out of her trance or whatever it is. Right. So Olivia Hussey's in it. Um, you get Margot Kidder is the other sort of big star of the film. Right. And this is pre-Lois, Superman. pre-Superman, yeah. uh, pre-Lois Lane. And um, she is more of the brash, loud mouth sister. Drunk. And yeah, she's drunk in every scene. She's supposed to have a drinking problem, college drinking problem. Uh, I think anybody that's been to college, we all have at some point known somebody that we're like, oh, yeah, you're you're going to be like the 40-year-old alcoholic one day. Okay. Right. Uh, <laughs> and um, there's a few other uh, starring speaking roles. Um, probably the only other person that you might recognize right off the bat would be Andrea Martin. Uh, she plays Phil, who... Andrea Martin, anybody that was a fan of SCTV, but also if you're a fan of uh, Only Murders in the Building, she Mm -hmm. played Steve Martin's love interest, the makeup woman, on the most recent season. Um, That's comedian Andrea Martin. But also, uh, later on, we'll meet uh, John Saxon as the the detective. And... You'll see some other people that you kind of vaguely, you're like, oh, I think I know that guy. Where, is it? Where do I know that? There's a lot of guys in this movie that are that popped up in small parts in other films, especially the desk sergeant. He is, he was, a, he's a character actor. He has a very long career. Um, his, hmm. The actor's name is uh, Douglas McGrath. In this, he plays Sergeant hmm. Nash. Uh, but he was in Pale Rider, Outlaw Josie Wales. He was in Porky's, Twilight Zone, the movie, and probably the most recent thing that any horror movie fan might have seen him in. He was also the first one to get possessed 
in Ghosts of Mars, John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's no. When the, the minute you see him, you're like, I know that guy. I he's know got that one guy. of those faces. He literally sure. has like a face that's almost like a caricature of Joe average everyman face. You know, right. kind of yeah. looks a little goofy, doesn't look totally too smart, you know, but uh, a very well, recognizable movie. Oh, yeah. He, yeah. Sergeant Nash is hilariously moronic in yeah. this film. Um, now, the uh, oh. one. F- oh, go ahead. Oh, and did you recognize another face? Um, so if you are a fan of A Christmas Story, if you remember when the dad bargains with the um, the Christmas tree guy, um, that is also the um, guy who is trying to trace the phone call. With the telephone the company. Movie. Yep, you're right. Yep. So yeah, Bob Clark did have a, a couple of guys that he that he knew from Canada mm-hmm. that he liked to work with a lot. And and good good character actors. I mean, they, they have small parts, but they make a crap ton out of those parts. Like, these guys... Yeah, they do. They, they definitely... They're yeah, really good. Yeah, they bring really it. Good. They bring it. Yep. And um, fun fact, uh, Andrea Martin, who we were just talking about, um, she was not originally supposed to play Phil. It was actually supposed to be Gilda Radner. Oh. But the schedule for Saturday Night Live was too big oh, of a conflict. She had just gotten cast right. on Saturday Night Live. 74, the first season was 75. And right? so the, she yeah. couldn't tear herself away from working on that to go film the, the movie. So kind of right. a little bit last minute, because Bob Clark had already been kind of chatting her up about doing the film. So last minute, he's like, oh, who's another funny lady that I know from another Canadian comedy troupe? Right. <laughs> sure. Let's get in Andrea Martin. And Andrea Martin yep. brings in a, a a solid performance. Andrea Martin was known on SCTV as like one of the uh, women that would kind of ham it up. And in this, she's very subtle, very subdued. You know, you wouldn't well, even notice her if, if you didn't know who she was. Actually, it, it's a good point because it, really, you're talking about a really good cast. I mean, Olivia Hussey, Margot Kidder, John Saxon, I mean, all the and then all the smaller roles, you know, these are really good actors and and they they all do a really nice job in this. So when we're talking about slasher movies and stuff like that, right, we talk about sometimes story suffers and acting suffers and stuff like that. You're not going to get those great performances, but every once in a while you get those horror movies that just have a just solid cast all around. And this is one of those. And even uh, one person we didn't mention because um, his, his performance is purposefully um, uh, negative. You know, you're, you're, he's built up to be, Peter. Uh, yeah, the character of Peter played by uh, Kier Delea um, yeah. in Canada. Kier Delea was heartthrob status. Like yeah. just no, to, he does a really good job of being a total asshole. Oh him. yeah, 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 yeah. It's you know like nobody, nobody's ever been like, oh, you yeah, don't Kier, like this guy. Yeah, yeah nobody you don't like him. Nobody's ever been like, Kier Delea, what a dick. No, he plays a dick in this movie, and you feel yeah. it. <laughs> also, um, just to pause for a second, and I looked it up. 
when you watch this movie, you're like, so they're in college. Yep. So they're all supposed to be, but I think they're all like senior or like close to, or maybe even grad student or whatever. The girls that we're following are definitely supposed to be seniors. Twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, somewhere around there. Right? They're they're early twenties. He's like forty. Yeah. (laughs) And I looked it up, and he was he was thirty-nine. Yeah. years old when he when when they did this movie yeah so olivia hussey is like 22 23 years old and he's like 40 yeah yeah and and basically it was like hey here grow your hair out into a bit of a mop top and let's have you play younger <laughs> right now they do now he says you know i've been in one room for eight years so he's been there for eight years so if you take it from 18 but that makes him 26 he still doesn't yeah like again and we talk about this all the time with older movies like how people look i don't i don't know what it is and i and maybe it's maybe that generation thought the same thing in the generation before it but this dude looked yeah all of 40 yeah right yeah he is definitely older um But yeah, he's supposed to be uh, a grad student. Like he he is trying to get, I believe, like his uh, master's. Well, he's a and, yeah, he's a pianist. He's, a he's, try, he's trying to reach uh, a certain level, a certain mastery, and you know he he's he's going for that. He has like a big performance that he's been preparing for for the last year. Um, it's like a conservatory thing. He's in a conservatory, which is like for, you know, akin to a master's degree level program, uh, to, to be a, a a performing pianist, you know? Right. And it's like, if you pass that conservatory, you're going to get all these opportunities to play for orchestras and operas and you'll, you'll be set. The best of the best, the best of the best. And, and he is, he is the pressure cooker of the film. So he's under pressure. I I got to give him that. Okay. So he's under a little bit of pressure in this movie. So I understand that. But he is still a dick. Absolutely. <laughs> and we'll get into why. We'll get into why we'll get in into just a why. little bit. Because it, sure. it's, it's a big deal. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's a <Sure>. big deal. <laughs> yep. You um, thought this was just a simple slasher, folks. Nah. <laughs> nope. So now there's an interesting thing. So um, there's some people, and and I know I've done this, when I remember the film back to myself, mm. um, I for some reason always remember it that, the, that he makes the phone calls first. But that's not true. He makes a phone call, the crank calls from the mysterious Billy. We don't find out his name's Billy till later. Mm-hmm. He makes a phone call only after after he's killed every time he kills somebody he makes another crank phone call yeah so by the time they get their first phone call in the film from billy it's because he's already killed his first first victim upstairs in the bedrooms and brought her up to the attic Mm -hmm. so they do make a big deal out of the phone prior to that. Like they're, they're getting phone calls. It's like, it's Christmas. It's busy. They're getting phone calls. People are talking on the phone. Olivia Hussey talks to Peter on the phone and things like that. Um, but Claire, 
unfortunately, the most innocent girl, and that's that sets a tone. Bob Clark sets a tone. The most seemingly innocent, virtuous girl of the group is the first one to die. Right. And uh, and how does she die, Brad? How does he get her? Well, he's in her closet, and this is a terrible way to die. So you have the dry... She has uh, her clothes hanging in the closet, and she has some dry cleaning there. So there's the dry cleaning bags, and he's standing behind it. and Completely obscured, but only... Completely obscured. You cannot see it, yeah. Yeah, only enough to where, like, on first glance, you don't know anybody's there. But if you Mm -hmm. looked long and hard enough... You begin you to see, make like, out. His, yeah, you could see where his hand is. Yeah, that kind of thing. So, but she hears the noise and she's like, "Who? Who's in there? What? What's Thinks going it might on? be the hey, cat. They have, a, they have a house right, cat. Yeah. So she, she, so she walks into the closet to see, you know, the trace of the noise and um, uh, the source of the noise, and um, it's him. And then he takes the dry cleaning plastic and he wraps it around her face, and so she can't breathe. And he suffocates her. Yeah, he suffocates so. her, and then he drags her up into the attic with him. Yep. And that's when they get their first phone call from Billy. Yep. And for any of our more sensitive listeners out there, wow. strong language warning. <laughs> mm, oh. Billy pulls no punches in these phone calls. <laughs> so that was actually a note that I had. Um, the, yeah, the phone calls, they're not your scream style. Like, Hey, yeah. what's your favorite scary movie? No, 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 no. Hello, Sydney. <laughs> yeah, no, these are bananas phone calls, right? He right. is all over the map. He's calling them the C word. He's like having conversations with himself. He's making pig noises. He's snorting. Yeah, you little pigs. Uh, you little pigs. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes it's not like like it's it's crazy because he's not just directly talking to them. He's talking. He's having conversations with himself in different characters. Right. Right. Different voices. So he's he's different. He's using different voices to have conversations with each other, and then he breaks that and then he calls them the c words yeah, and, and i like want that. you to and i want you to super i want you to suck rough. on my juicy you know what <laughs> the other c word so yeah no we're not afraid like, to swear on the on this podcast but we you know it it is highly inappropriate and and i don't know that on a we're recording this on a sunday night i don't know what i want to get into <laughs> most of that language on a sunday night <laughs> after people are getting out of church no um no but the phone calls are just really graphic and really bizarre and really crazy and that's kind of what um that i think that is a big uh, addition to the film it's a it, it, it was a good decision to kind of not just have him harassing them by talking directly to them like calling them you know the c word and yada 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 and, but doing it scream style you know yeah. like that that added kind of dynamic of him having these conversations with himself and the different voices and different characters really like you're just like oh my god this dude is out of his mind. Yeah. yeah, he is a full-on maniac. He is a maniac. 
Yeah, yep. absolutely. And, yep. and and it, it, it that's part of that's the scary. That's one of the scariest parts of the movie is is that added dynamic of him. Just he's completely Looney Tunes. He's not some prank phone caller. And each call builds that tension that we're talking about with each mm-hmm. kill and then each phone call. It builds more tension. The women are getting more afraid every mm-hmm. time he calls. Um, there is a little bit of inadvertent comic relief uh, that I get when I listen to Olivia Hussey answer the phone in this movie. <laughs> what? <Okay>. Who? <laughs> Hello? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a party going on, yeah. Kyle. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I laugh every time she does that. But <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But yeah uh, Billy is out of his gourd, out of his mind, and that very first phone call, especially after he's, we know he's already murdered one of them. The girls downstairs have no clue, mm-hmm. and he's going batshit crazy on the phone, saying all this dirty, nasty stuff, and Margot Kidder. Because she is, uh, she her character puts forward the front of having it all together. You know, she tries to put forward a front of confidence and brashness, and so she grabs the phone and she starts kind of giving it back to him a little bit, giving him some attitude, and she finally just tells him to fuck off. And that's when you get the scariest moment of any one of the phone calls because he goes from 11 down to a 1. <laughs> I'm going to kill you. <laughs> that's right. That's what he says to Margot Kidder. So he's having these, he's like, ah, you know, oh, you yeah. can't, you can't, you can't. And, yeah, you know, and then all of a sudden he says, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and he hangs up like, the phone. Ah! And it's at that moment then also we get the shot that it's winter Christmas time out the window of the attic and who comes bobbing into frame on a rocking chair like like a drinking uh, crane toy. <laughs> well, right. We have to talk about that, right? So Claire. Claire, yeah. Um, Claire's father. Uh, so she dies, right? She the, yeah. he gets her, and she and, but but she's bobbing and back she and forth in frame to... with the the plastic still wrapped around her face, right? And um, the father the next day, the father is supposed to meet Claire. He's going to pick um, her up. He's going to pick her up from pick school her up for the holidays. For, for right? the holidays, and he's supposed to meet her, and he can't find her. So he starts asking around, and he starts kind of getting directions, and and no one. No one that he's talking to has seen her. So he's starting to get worried. He's there with, you know, the girls in the house and Mrs. Mack, who's the, the house mother. We haven't mentioned her yet. Yeah. Yeah, they do have and, a house mother. And and he's starting to like, okay, like they're all kind of starting to, okay, have you seen Claire? Have you seen Claire? Have you seen Claire? Like no one's seen Claire. Like where's Claire, right? So They thought um, she already they, left. They thought she so was then, gone to meet him. Well, but, but since – since he comes back, they're like, okay, obviously something's wrong. Um, so now they go to the police and now you meet John Saxon, right? Like, so this is where uh, they finally, they have to file a police report because they think something's happened to their friend. Um, so 
that there's a so the the one of the kind of underlying parts of the movie is that they have that search for claire um kind of you know for the first half of the movie and then at the not to again this 1974 and i don't know if i'm spoiling it for you but (laughs) what you said the whole time the cops have been to the house there's cops sitting outside the house at the end of the movie because now like there's this being this series of murders and stuff so now these are realistic cops they put a detail on you know the house and there's someone sitting outside protecting and the cops john saxon has been in and out of the house right the cops have been around the property yeah yeah and the whole the whole time claire has been in the window she's been sitting in the attic attic window in clear view in the window in the attic if anyone had just looked up time all they had to do was look up they did a search party because there another girl went missing that's right which and so they had which you have to assume was the same guy because she went missing yep she went missing they go to file the police report they they go to file the police report and while they're there filing their police report another woman has come in and she's filing a police report because her daughter's missing and a much younger girl too it was a much younger younger, girl right it was a much younger girl so they have to do this search party and and you know the father there's that kind of shot where the father they don't know who it is there's just screaming. Yeah, they found a we found and a body. He, we found a body. We found a body and he walks up and he realizes it's not it's not Claire. The the mother comes up behind him and realizes it's it's her daughter. And yeah, that's, and it's that's, that's a heartbreaking part of the movie too. Yeah, it's one of those weird things like um if anybody listening uh, if you watch a lot of dateline, you see that stuff a lot where somebody goes missing and then someone else is found and it's that weird moment of you're relieved that mm-hmm. it's not your loved one, but then but you also, have no closure. yeah, where's where's where where's my daughter? You know, where's my daughter? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we we get this. It's it's this wild thing. She's up there the entire. So from that point on, through the whole movie, Claire yep. is sitting in that attic. Yeah, while course, everybody is looking for her. While everybody's looking for her, and then. Billy just starts adding body count. Um, mm. He eventually uh, gets Mrs. Mac. Let's talk about Mrs. Mac uh, just a little bit briefly because there's another thing worked in here that Bob Clark, like it, it's these little character things that don't seem like they should be necessary, but yet they build these characters so that they seem like three-dimensional, well-rounded people. Yep. Yeah. And it's very effective then because, you know, even even if you don't necessarily like Mrs. Mac, mm. Mrs. Mac now seems like a real person. So I would say that we're always talking about likable characters, but you can get around that a little bit. They can be a little bit unlikable if they're well-rounded and you give them depth and you make them feel like someone real. Do you think Mrs. Mack is unlikable? A little bit. A little bit. Because... Because of the drinking? Not because of the drinking. It's actually because of 
her kind of um she's a little bit of a two face she's trying to like put a put a good face on for the dad uh, but meanwhile, she's been letting the girls kind of do whatever they want, and but she's the house mother. They so all love again, her. They all love. You see they, how they, much they love her. Um, but yeah, you see it. You see how the girls react to her. So you feel like there must be something to her. They must have affection for her in some way. But mm-hmm. you know, Mrs. Bank, but she does. She has a major drinking problem. She does you so how do you how do you figure out that she has a major drinking problem <laughs> it's it's got to be the bottle in the toilet tank. <laughs> did you think it was the toilet tank? I thought it was the book oh the one in the cutout she had cut out the pages in the book in the shape of the bottle so that she could hide the bottle in the book so she knows exactly which book on the bookshelf it is, and she pulls it off and opens it up and there's a str- and and what is she drinking? Uh, Did you see? What no, no. What it, what is it? What is it? Did you stop it and look at the label? It says straight sherry. <laughs> it's cooking sherry. <laughs> so, so, so if you like back in the eighties, right? Like the the that idea we talk about, um, uh, Jackson P. Sayer and Halloween Four, right? That yeah. that kind of, he played a lot of winos in the eighties and stuff like that. Sherry was is that alcohol that's associated with like a wino, someone who has a major, major drinking problem. Be- because for anybody who doesn't realize, uh, like sherry, like that kind of sherry, it, it's super cheap. It's mm. not at all good. No. And it usually has uh, somewhat of a eh, above average alcohol content because what it's made for is for cooking and flavoring food. <laughs> you know, cook, right. People talk about cooking sherry, and that's the thing. You like cooking sherry is like super cheap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she has, uh, and then obviously, like you said, the bottle in the toilet tank. Um, <laughs> she has booze hidden all over the house. Yep. All over the house. So, um, which is kind of funny because their girls are. I guess it's because she's the house mother and she can't be seen to be because you said she's two faced, right? She has to put on the that persona that she's in control. She's the house mother. She's taking care of these girls, especially when one of the girl's fathers comes to visit. She has to like, you know, she has to put on the act, right? Yeah. But when nobody's there she's just drinking you know yeah. and the girls are kind of the girls are kind of running the house it's really you said margot kidder kind of has that has taken on uh that kind of leadership role of that kind of group like she's the kind of strong personality in that group uh and then like olivia hussey so um those are kind of the two you know strong personalities in the group and they're the really the ones that kind of run the house and not yeah. so much maybe mrs mack yeah and, and also, one of the things that, um, the reason it's centered around these characters is because all the other girls have gone home for winter break. All the other mm-hmm. girls have left. And so, Olivia Hussey has to stay because you can tell from her accent that she's, you know, from another country. She's come here to go to school. And so, right, she can't just go home. Yep. And Margot Kidder... It actually works into her character because Margot Kidder's character, 
you see, the, you know, unfolding over the course of the film, her alcohol problem. Yep. And she's over the course of the holiday break, she's getting more and more and more inebriated to the point where she's giving alcohol to, they have little kids over as part of like a charity Christmas event that the sorority sisters are holding. And mm-hmm. she's giving one of the kids alcohol <laughs> to drink. Well, she's giving didn't them she wine. have a phone call? Didn't she have a phone call with her mother that didn't go well? Right. It's, and, and that's kind of maybe what shits is that relationship that she's going through something with her, well, with her mom or her parents or whatever. She, she, she can't she doesn't go home she can't go home right she doesn't right like it's like nobody wants her at home for the holiday so she's staying there you know so yeah there's like a and and again you know it's these little touches there's the fact Mm -hmm. that he's really developing their backstory reason why she's a drunk right (laughs) i think there might be a deep there's got to be a deep reason that mrs mac is hiding you know Oh yeah, sherry, sherry bottles in the in in a in a toilet tank, right? Who, who knows? <laughs> I want I want Well, well, I kind of want to know what her backstory was. I want to know what happened to her because it's yes. just her. So maybe she lost. Maybe she lost her husband like early on or something like that. And she's this kind of older widow, and she's drinking now. <laughs> you know, there's the. the, the I wanted. I, I I think maybe Bob Clark should have flushed out her character a little bit more. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, and so you have these characters that that even Margot Kidder, who has an unlikable character, it's those little things that you're like, oh, okay, there's there's a reason, there's an understandable reason why she puts up this front of confidence and is can be kind of the loud mouth, but oh, there's something sensitive and hurt under that that has produced what you see in front the person you see before you. She's and lashing out. She's lashing out. She's acting out. Um, she says inappropriate things to everyone. She says inappropriate sexual things to men. Um, which, Are you talking about the story of the, uh, the turtle? <laughs> the story of the turtles humping. <laughs> she tells the Claire's father. Without stopping, like for it's for something like days, like I forget it's two two weeks or something. Yeah, and uh, yeah, she tells this inappropriate story to Claire's father, who they've had over for dinner because he can't find his daughter. Um, Then uh, she also makes inappropriate, what are very funny, but inappropriate comments to Sergeant Nash, who doesn't he doesn't know what sex like terminology means, you know, she tells him that their, their phone number, this is back when you got to remember phone numbers at that time, uh, even in 74 still started with like a town name or a zone name or whatever. And then had a series. This is just before the area code system starts to work itself in. We're working our way out of the old phone system and into the new area code system. So she gives the phone number for the sorority house as uh, she starts it with fellatio. Right. And he... It's a new extension. It's, yeah, he gives her a look and she says, oh yeah, it's a brand new extension. They just they just started using it. And Nat, Sergeant Nash has no idea what fellatio is, what it means. None. 
And so he writes it dutifully, writes it down. And then later on, Bob Clark, because he's Mr. Porky's, he does a callback to that where the other cops are cracking up at Sergeant Nash because he has told them that the phone number of the sorority house is fellatio one, two, three, four or whatever. Right. Right. Now, now, Okay, so to backtrack a little bit, um, I don't put this all on Margot Kidder. She, the guy, he kind of deserved it because <laughs> Nash is kind of one of those classic dismissive cops, right? Until the end. Right. There's a reason the he works the, movie, the desk. Right, right. There's a reason he works the desk. He's, he's, they come in to file the, pol- the, the police report um, about Claire missing. And really, he's just kind of he's like, yeah, she probably ran off with her boyfriend or whatever. Like, yeah. You no, know, that, that classic, like, she's just, no, 90% of the time they're off with their boyfriend or whatever. Right. right. And, and, and he says it in front of the dad. You know what I mean? And so Margot Kidder gets annoyed. Yeah. And kind of now she plays this prank on now, him. Yeah, so, now she's going to mess with him. And, yeah. and yeah, it, it is one of those things where um, it takes – and we're going to get into into this because this is all building towards something. It takes Claire's boyfriend coming into the police station. The boyfriend Ooh. is a a very uh, locally respected uh, hockey player, uh, which in in Canada, like hockey that's players talk, people listen, right? Yep, that's a big deal. <laughs> so. That's a big deal. The boyfriend comes in. Newsflash, hockey is big in Canada. (laughs) In case you didn't know, kids. (laughs) Um, He's your local Tom Brady for us Americans. Yeah, yeah. in the birthplace of hockey, hockey is like a big deal. (laughs) It's like football is here, hockey is there. But he comes in and raises hell. And that's what gets... Uh, the lieutenant now, uh, John Saxon plays, um, where is he? Lieutenant Fuller. That's what gets Lieutenant Fuller out of the office. Mm-hmm. He hears the boyfriend screaming at Sergeant yep. Nash, berating him. Like, yep. get off your ass and do your job. So Lieutenant Fuller, John Saxon, the badass, the man, the myth, the legend, comes out wearing his best IMA, it's very serious lieutenant in the police department to pay <laughs> and he's like what's going on here and that's when the boyfriend and the father get to be like hey she's missing yeah yep. she's been missing for like over a day now yeah. what is going because even the boyfriend thought she was already gone he's like i didn't expect right. her to talk to her till after the holiday right so that's when then John Saxon is like on the case. He's like, mm-hmm. oh, we got to find this girl, you know? Yep. And Sergeant Nash looks like the moron that he is. Yes. For not taking it seriously. Like, oh, here this, like, you know, the, you, again, you watch enough Dateline, you see enough of the cops, you know, it's like the, the classic, oh, prostitutes go missing, cops don't investigate very hard. That it mm. happens in all these different cases. The most, uh, the biggest one recently was uh, Gilgo Beach, the Long Island serial killer. Mm-hmm. But this is, and especially for the seventies, this is a girl in a sorority at a local college 
who was supposed to be meeting with her father the next day, who, you know, they're all saying she, this, this was the good girl. This was the responsible girl. This was, you know, and here's Sergeant Nash treating it like it's just some, you know, gal, you know, from the, 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 any, like any other missing person that they would receive, he's treating it the way a cop normally would at that time period. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, well, you know. Yep. So... It, and it begins to set up the trend in the film of, and I think it, it, it definitely was, I think, part of the reason why uh, Bob Clark wanted to make the girls older. He didn't want them to be high school babysitters. He wanted these to be these educated college women mm-hmm. because it begins to set up this idea that the men in the film a don't respect the women mm, yep. and b the women in the film um are all dealing with that in different ways mm-hmm. margot kidder and we were just talking about her and the and the alcohol abuse and the things that she says to men in the film Margot Kidder's answer to being sort of underestimated and treated poorly and, and being dismissed in this world, her answer is A, to drink. She has the family stuff at home, but mm-hmm. then all this other kind of stuff that you can start to see boiling underneath. She's dismissed by men. She sees that her only value is sexual and Mm -hmm. so she acts out she drinks too much she says kind of blue raunchy things to men and Mm -hmm. talks about sex a lot and all this kind of stuff which there's no problem with a woman talking about sex but she's doing it in this confrontational way that also she thinks is kind of like fun and flirty a little bit like she's not trying to like piss off Claire's dad. She thinks she's like engaging in adult conversation with a man. You know, you know what I mean? It's like Mm -hmm. this, it's like this kind of almost odd, like whatever is going on in her life, she feels like, Oh, this is how you have to talk to men to get them to notice and respect you. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. Right. And And then you have, um, you have then the other major character of Olivia Hussey. And this is where the, the big, uh, kind of subtext issue of the film comes in because they're going through this horrible thing with this, their friends missing, people are going missing. They're getting these crazy calls from some wacko. Yep. So there's a lot going on, right? Right. There's a lot going on in this movie. And you're like, you're sitting there in 1974 in the theater. Like, man, okay. There's a lot going on. It's a good slasher movie going on. And then Bob Clark decides to add in what Kyle? That would be the abortion issue. (laughs) That would be the abortion issue in 1974. Right. 
And... Because because her boyfriend Peter, mm-hmm. who we see blows, absolutely blows his conservatory like final. This was the performance in front of like the panel of you know because because well he blow why why does he blow the performance. Well, he she's doesn't. Told him, she, she's told him, right? She's told him that. Oh, that's he's pregnant. That's right. And, she she and, has informed him. So they already have that fight, and right. then he that's that's what sets him off. So she's like, um, she's like, well, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna have the abortion, and and he then they get into the argument because he doesn't want her to have the abortion, and that it just sets him off for the rest of the movie. Um, he he's, and, and he's so he he blows the the performance his big final and then is so upset about it he does what he gets so upset about it what blows the performance when he after he blows the performance what does he do uh what does he do he destroys the piano oh he just oh that's right he does so he acts out violently yes he destroys the piano which is all trying to lead you, the audience member, to think that, okay, maybe... He begins to get set up. He begins to get set up, but I think the way they kind of do it is they're, they're like, because you don't know who it is. Right. So it's a, it, it is a who, who is it, who done it, whatever. So you're like, could, it can't be that, well, it can't be him because he's not up in the attic. Yeah. So that's yeah, what you're right. thinking. You know, but, but they think they're they're thinking that um, it could be him. They start to yeah. you know when he gets into the arguments with Olivia Hussey, and the he's he storms out of the house, and John Saxon watches him storm out of the house as he's walking in, and he looks at him suspiciously. So now John Saxon has taken note of this guy. Right, right. Yeah, he's he's on the radar now, and. A, a big part of that, I mean, Bob Clark actually throws you a couple of, he, he gives you just enough for you to question what you think you know or don't know, because there's also the issue that the front door keeps getting left open somehow. Yeah. So right, you don't right, know, right. like, you begin to not know, you begin to, like, doubt, okay, is Billy up, we know Billy comes down out of the attic to murder people, right, in yes. the house. Right. Yep. Is Billy when people are in other rooms or when they're out at the police station or is he getting in and out of the house at will? Well, I mean, all he has to do, well, the lattice leads right up to the to the right. attic window. So, so he can go in and out, like, pretty freely. So it leaves it open, like, okay, yes, Peter is at his conservatorship performance. He's at, you know, this, all this other stuff. And I said conservatorship, like he's Brittany. No conservatory, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, but it leaves it open. Like, is he maybe, again, we're pro Brittany. Brittany. (laughs) Is he maybe getting in and out, you know, in, in these other ways. Right. Um, but yeah, so it, it, begins to set up this thing where Peter begins to look like he's he's spinning out he's losing the thread 
And he and Olivia Hussey have this very big, like on my television right now, they're having their big talk on the couch where he's like, now he's blown it. He's got no future. The the future that he thought he was going to have with this music career, this very serious classical music career is gone. He, 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 and it's kind of funny because yeah, he could with his education, he could easily pick up and do anything else. Right. He could be yeah. But for someone like that, in that high stress, high level, you know, he's like you said, eight years of college he's been working towards this. And now it's evaporated in front of him. So it's one of those moments where somebody that's wound that tight about this like dream that's gone. And now it's as if, you know, there's nothing. I have nothing. Right. They can't yeah. foresee like, well, you could be a music teacher at a, you know, local school or something. That's it. Just not what he's been working his whole life to be. Right. Right. And so all of a sudden, because now he has in his mind, nothing now it's, well, I'm going to put all of my attention and effort now into building this family with you, Olivia Hussey. <laughs> right, right. And and that's her, that's her thing. She's like, I'm not, I have dreams too. We had this conversation. Remember when you said you wanted to be this great pianist and you wanted to travel the world and do all these great things. Well, I have that dream. I have the dreams too. Yeah. And that's the whole, so it's a very, so you're, by the way, you are watching a horror movie. Right. You're watching a <laughs> slasher movie. Can we remind people of that? Because Kyle, <laughs> that's what I did. And I know we were going to get into this. This is when you think about it, 1974 equal rights amendment was proposed when like, Early seventies, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're right in the middle. So you're talking. Yeah, well, you're. You're. I I should say you're you're on the, not in the in the in the middle, but I mean you're on the back end of the the women's movement is at right. peak level. It's at yeah. peak level. Right. Right. Yep. You know, yep. women, women are demanding they... more equality in the workplace. They're demanding yeah. access to better jobs. They're right. demanding, uh, you know, control of their bodies, the whole nine. So Bob Clark is reflecting that that switch out of the 50s, those gender roles, right, where the woman stays at home and the man goes to work. Right. And the, it, and it's the job of the woman to support the man who and his job and his aspirations and his dreams and right. Stand behind. Stand by your man. Yeah. Right? That, that kind of thing. And and now this is the that equal rights amendment was proposed. You're talking about uh, you know the the women's movement and um, that fight from women that they can go out and pursue their own dreams and and the the the, the backlash and the con and and the conflict yeah. that they encounter from the man who's like, wait a minute, what? You know, like absolutely not. You know, they don't want to change. Right. So it's it, that that whole fight. So, yeah, that you're so Bob Clark is adding all of that into this slasher movie. Exactly. You and, and it's funny because you have 
within the four main girls that you deal with through the movie, mm. you have almost every part of that discussion. You've got Claire, right. who is the good girl, the God-fearing girl, who is mm-hmm. more than happy to stay in that role. Her father yeah. sees her that way. Like, that's right. his father. The father, when he shows up and he sees, like, her room and some of the posters and things that she has up, it's sort of like that that kind of reaction of, like, not my daughter. What What is this, you know? Right, right. My, my daughter's not like that, you know? Right. And she's portraying that role for her dad for her boyfriend the whole bit then you have uh margot kidder's character who is portraying what she thinks the world wants from her the world of men wants from her uh which is the more the the sexual object end of things Mm-hmm. Then you have Andrea Martin's character, who you don't get a lot of character development from her, but I think it's more about like her overall kind of she's the she's the more bookish, quiet, smart girl. There's a reason he puts her in glasses mm-hmm. and everything. Sure. She is sort of just um, she's about the education. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, she doesn't get wrapped up in the drama stuff. I'm just here right. to you know. I'm just here to get my education and and go do whatever it is I'm going to do. Right. And then you have Olivia Hussey who represents that. Look, I have agency in my own life. And just because something happened, which it, I, it's not that I don't think it, it's, uh, uh, she, she's, she doesn't look at it as a good thing or a bad thing. There, there. She fully recognizes there may come a time when I want kids, when I want that in my life. Now mm-hmm. I'm not ready for that, and I'm not right. ready for that with you. Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, she is, even though she's the most, I think, seemingly demure of the four women. Hmm. She also is intrinsically made out to be the strongest. She sticks to what she wants and what she says. Right. And makes herself yeah. very clear. And in a very honest, very sensitive way, she, mm-hmm. she's not out to hurt him. She's not out to do, but she's just like, no, no, we're not. But gonna... she puts that on her shoulders too. Yeah. That not only is she the one who's pregnant, She's got to be has to go through this. She has to comfort the guy. Right. Right. So, yeah, who's losing it? Who's absolutely losing it? He can't. Who's lost it? He can't take the the freedom, but has the freedom to lose it. Right. She doesn't have that luxury. Yeah. Yeah. He 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 basically is like, how could you do this to me? That's his take. And it's all about him. It's yep. all about him and his career and his his dreams and aspirations. Yep. And as we're talking about this and talking about the, that this film, as wild as it sounds, I know there's people out there that are going to listen to this and be, they're going to be like, Kyle, Brad, you're, you're, you're making something out of this. I don't believe that at all. I don't think so. This, I don't think so. This, this is film very... is about male perception of yep. women and women's yep. agency. Yep. And yep. it's wrapped up. It, it's culminated in the maniac Billy 
who purely sees these women as objects for him to do with whatever he wishes. He right. is the ultimate uh, the ultimate predator of their agency. Yeah. Like, oh, you think you guys have it together? I'm going to take your whole world away. I'm going to take your whole life away. Everything that you could have been, I'm going to take it. Because right. I can and I want to and this is who I am and that's how you are and I'm on top. Yeah. And he's probably he's probably like an incel, right? Well, and yet that's the thing is what you get out of the crazy phone calls is that Billy has had some weird thing happen in his life where a woman above him mm. did things to him. Mm. And so now it's classic and this plays into the background of the vampire rapist case. Yeah, yeah. Yep. He's now going to take that power back. Right. You know, because he's completely yeah. out of control. So the only way he feels in control is if he exerts control over somebody else and makes the ultimate like all killers. He gets to make the ultimate decision of who lives and right. who dies. That's right. how he gets his jollies. Is I'm right. going to make that decision for you. Oops, sorry, you can't do shit about it. Right. Right. Yep. So <laughs> when we when we talk about how horror movies <laughs> can contain <laughs> big things, this is exactly this is what, this we're, is talking exactly what we're talking and about. And yet, yep. when you watch it, you don't. It's not like it's thrown at your face. Mm -hmm. This is all stuff that when you sit and you watch it and you think about it, it bubbles up. It bubbles mm -hmm. up from well, underneath. Com coming back to a movie, right? When when you have a different perspective. So age 13, I'm oh, just yeah. thinking about the dude in the attic, right? right? You're just thinking about the dude in the attic. You're dead and they're fighting and whatever. And who it's cares? Just, it's and just a serial killer movie. Next? Just a serial killer movie. And then you're, you're a little bit older and you go through some stuff and then you kind of um, maybe at 21, 22, you more side with Peter as a man, right? Cause you know, you're young and you're stupid and all you're, and right. you're selfish. It's all about all you. It's all, and it's all about you. And all you're thinking about is you and where you're going. And then when you're in your 40s and you've had relationships and you've had relationships succeed and you've had relationships fail and you maybe gain perspective on why they succeeded and failed. And then you can kind of go back and watch this movie and you go, oh, my God. Yeah. Holy shit. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yep. And so then. On the back end of that, one of the things that I thought would be good to talk about, this movie did spawn two remakes. And we won't get deep into the remakes because we just don't have enough time. That's for like another day. Maybe we can have an episode for another Christmas someday, an episode where we compare all three, like in depth. Great, because I have to watch them because I have not watched <laughs> them. Because I have no interest in a remake of this movie. Right. I, I just don't. I It's... Uh, you know, just to talk about that for a second, you know, we talk about what we don't want remade all the time. Like, you, right. know, you know, we talk about and it's not it, it's not the same thing, but there is a connection between John Carpenter and Bob Clark here. But John Carpenter's um, 
um, Big Trouble in Little China was was almost up for a remake. Right. Uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson was gonna was gonna remake it, and we wanted no part of it. And there's a there's a there's a charm to that movie as it was made in 1986. There's a feel to that movie as it was made in in 1986, and by John Carpenter, the right. way he shot it, the way he directed it, the way like at the whole feel of the movie was very very John Carpenter. Right. This is this is Bob Clark. Yeah. So you take Bob Clark out of the equation, right? Because d- d- I don't know. Did he do that? No, he, he, no, he, he was passed away by then, right? Uh, was he passed away by then? I, I think didn't he? I think he died in a. Where did I? He died that? in a car accident. Yeah, he died in a car he? accident, like in the. I want to say the nineties. Ninety. Yeah. Yep. We should probably look that up. But. Yeah. Um. But but yeah. So you take Bob Clark out of the equation and you remake it. You're not remaking it with that with all of that that we're talking about you know you're just making a a a slasher movie you're not looking at it you know the way through bob clark's eyes you know so i have no interest in watching a remake of of black christmas but if we have to do an episode on it obviously i'll watch it there's two but you said there's two there's two yeah there's um there was a 2006 and there was a 2019. I'm just, I'm looking a couple of things up just to make sure that I have my dates correct. So I'm just doing a little, little Google work here. Um, yeah. yeah, So there was, yeah, the original came out October 11th, 1974, you know, right in time for Halloween, the beginning of the holiday season, black Xmas, came out oh god now that that came out on christmas december 25th 2006 um and that was the one that um the 2006 one uh starred michelle trachtenberg and i think Lacey chabert andrea martin came back uh in the role of the house mother in that one Mm. to kind of like kind of give her stamp of approval you know we got somebody back from the original (laughs) right somebody yeah and then uh the most recent one that was done by blumhouse was uh came out december 13th 2019 and so just to briefly kind of go over it so the most the most successful monetarily was the 2006 Uh, a lot of people went out to the theater to see the 2006 version um, because that version actually made, let me get down here. That one actually uh, topped the charts at uh, a $21 million worldwide take. I mean, the original, it was 1974, so it only made like four mil, but, um, but the 2019 one that Blumhouse did only made, uh, eighteen point five million. Now that's still a lot of money, but that's not. It it did not beat out the two thousand six film. Um, it now, made part, eighteen million dollars total worldwide. Yeah, eighteen point five. That's not. That's not. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much it costs to make, so it's all all about profitability. But normally by even horror movie scales you know i mean without the big horror movies annabelle yeah, their their budget was like 5 million their budget halloween was... 
Halloween made the 2018 version made like 275 million dollars. Yeah. Worldwide. Yeah. So so yeah, the 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 Black Christmas of 2006 was a little more popular. Um, it was more of a straightforward uh, remake. It was a maniac killing sorority girls in a sorority house. Uh, there wasn't a lot that they did to really tweak what Bob Clark had done. It was more of just a, hey, let's remake it for a modern audience. Mm. But then what happened in 2019 with Blumhouse was we get into this period of, and I, I won't use a bunch of catch terms because I don't believe in all that stuff, but we get, we're kind of a little bit in the area of, of pandering. We, we pander to the audience as if they're dumb, as if they don't get the themes or the subtext. Um, very classically, most recently, uh, the, the um, I think it's uh, the Polish showrunner of the show The Witcher on Netflix had said mm-hmm. that they dumbed down the material for American audiences because American audiences don't get it and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I feel like kind of coming into the that 2019, 2020, coming through this current era, it, it's, um, and I'm going to put it forward a strong opinion, there's like a contempt in Hollywood for the audience. Hollywood doesn't think the audience is right. They don't think the audience is smart. They don't think that they will get subtlety or subtext. And so they have to bash you in the face with all of these themes. And, you know, currently the themes are uh, things like diversity and girl power and things like that, which I'm not one of these guys. I have no problem with all that stuff being in in films. Like, you know, you get these, you get the online trolls who get wrapped up in, you know, who knows what world of, you know, being against everything. But I have no problem with any of that. If you, if you want to make a, a, you know, it's sort of like the, the, the example I use is like the female Ghostbusters. I didn't hate the female Ghostbusters movie because they were females. I hated it because it was a bad movie. I gave the movie a chance and I watched it. Well, yeah, well, that, that's a, that's a good, that's a good compare. Like, so the, um, all female cast of the Ghostbusters, you're talking about for the funniest women right on for paper, the funniest for the paper, funniest people that should be a great film absolutely kate oh my god kristen wig and kate mckinnon and melissa mccarthy and leslie jones like oh my god that's but the crazy. product that was produced yep. was substandard whether they want to admit that or not it was and it shows i mean because now they had to basically go back and and go back to the original franchise to make the afterlife and now the next movie that's going to be coming yep. out. Um, right. You know, but that's what I'm talking about is this idea that, you know, it, it, it's, it's not if you have all an all girl cast or an all black cast or a diverse cast, or if you have LGBTQ themes in it, I don't give a shit as long as it's a good movie. Sure. But Black Christmas 2019 fell into that, we're going to pander to these themes, and we're going to pander to the audience by basically treating treating them like they're dumb. So now all of a sudden, gone is Maniac Billy, the killer, and now it is an evil fraternity. 
the evil Wait. fraternity on the college campus who's murdering these girls. Yeah. They cha- they totally changed the, the story. Oh god. And then oh, somewhere god. as if as if we couldn't somehow have strong female characters, a la Olivia Hussey or Jamie mm. Lee Curtis or Sigourney mm. Weaver, in the middle of the movie, somehow these girls all learn close co- quarters combat and have literally what is just short of a kung fu fight with the members of this evil oh, fraternity. Yeah. Out of nowhere... They somehow right. now are able to to fight, have a physical fight with these guys, you know, and and turn common Whereas items into weapons. And Jamie you know, Lee Curtis is using like a hanger and like a knitting needle, right? You know? right. They and, they all and pick Olivia up. Hussey's using the poker from the yeah. fireplace. Yeah, and, and and given, I mean, it's like, what are you going to do? Yeah, okay, I'm going to grab my field hockey stick or whatever. I'm going to grab whatever is close to me. Yeah, but all of a sudden, me. somehow. I have like black belt level knowledge of how to take a guy down with a field hockey sure. stick, you know, and it, it just treats the audience like we're stupid. Like we like oh, now all of a sudden it goes from being like the original, a movie that on the surface is about just a slasher breaking into a sorority house and killing the girls inside. Mm hmm that has all of this subtext about how women are treated in society and how men view women and women trying to assert their agency and all these themes that are running through the center of it, like groundwater that when you watch it, if you're watching it critically and, and from a place of love for the genre, you will see it, you'll get it. Even mm. if it's not as deep as we're going, on some level you'll feel it. You know, right. something's going to trigger in your head, like God. What, now there, now there's an abortion in the middle of this. Like, what is going on? And it's going to make you think. It's going to mm. make you think about the film. Today, when the, a lot of these companies do these remakes, that's all gone. And right. now it's slap yeah. you in yep. the face with the evil over testosterone fraternity dudes. And now the girl, the girls can't just be strong of character and persevere. They have to be, you know, uh, they, they have to be right out of street fighter or mortal Kombat, Right. Yep. Sure. And it just treats the audience like we're dumb. Right. And we can't understand a more complex film that handles these subjects with care and subtlety. It's got to be like a, a Marvel movie, a cartoon, something, you know, something right. big, bold, in your face, beat you over the head with the the subtext. Well, that's 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 a good point, and and not to go off on a thing about remakes, but you know, when you think about think about Texas, Ch- so Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out the same year that this movie did. So. Um, we talk about that in the remake uh, and what the remake didn't have was Toby Hooper was also trying to reflect what was going on at the time where automation was taking jobs and killing towns. 
right? And, and, and small towns, poor towns that were just getting by just the, the way they were. And now they had the one company, in. the one company they was had, there it, it employing was everyone. It was slaughterhouse and and that's how that's what employed the sawyer family which isn't the sawyer family in the original they yeah. you don't know the name of the family it's just you know they're just whoever but um but that was their job and now like new improved methods of um taking these animals down came about they don't need they didn't need these people anymore yeah that were doing it on their own. They were doing it the old way, right? You needed someone to crack somebody over the head with the hammer, the, the cow over the head with the hammer and slaughter the cow. Like there, it, there was a, there was jobs there, but uh, he was trying to reflect what was going on at the time and, and how people were losing their jobs and towns were going under. And then um, they're, because they're of losing their sanity. They're degenerating sure. internally from within losing right. hope, becoming, yep. Becoming desperate. psychotic and desperate and in psychotic some cases. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, so it's same kind of same thing. So, you know, Bob Clark was, was reflecting what was going on at the time with the equal rights amendment and, and that dynamic between men and women, you know, and what that meant. And he was, he just, they added these things in while still giving you a slasher movie that you can enjoy. Um, but, but just like you said, just makes you think. Right? Yeah. Just start kind of ooh, like, and and again, when I first saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when I was I don't know, God, eleven, ten, I don't know when I first saw, it. Uh, but I was young. I you don't you, obviously you don't think about that because you don't know anything about that. But as yeah. you grow older and you start looking back on what these directors were doing, and it feeds back into the conversation we were having earlier, um, where horror, you know, remakes aside original horror has a lot to say and a lot yeah. to, you know, like a talk about, and it just doesn't get that respect. And it just kind of, it gets under my skin. Yeah. Yeah. It could be because you can, you can look at the remakes that, that have been made for some of these films as like, obviously the 2019 remake is a reflection of what to some people is this important thing today about, you know, the dynamics of college campuses and things like this, but it's about but the it's way it's in your right? face it's, and it treats you like your you're face. stupid. That's There's... not what Toby Hooper did. And that's not what Bob Clark did. They, they added these elements into it through dialogue, you know, um, and they expect something out of the audience. They expect right. a and conversation together. Right. Exactly. And, 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 and that's, that's not what the remakes are doing. The remakes are doing what you said. They're just, they don't think you're going to get it. They don't think you're going to realize it. They don't, they think, they, they think you're stupid. So they don't, gonna, they don't want to have a conversation. They don't want right. to have a conversation with the audience. This is what's right. This is what we think is they right. They want to tell the audience go. what they should feel. Whereas, as Bob Clark um, was reflecting, Toby Hooper was reflecting the conversation. Right. He was reflecting the argument. He was reflecting the conflict. Yeah. And saying this is what people are going through. Everyday people are going through and kind of like uh, to 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 allude to what you were saying a couple of episodes ago when you were talking about what makes Michael Myers so scary. And, you know, why do you watch these movies, Kyle? And you were talking about these people that are going through their everyday lives and dealing with their own heavy stuff. Right. We all got our stuff. 
and then you drop this stabby stabby bomb in the middle right. of it and watch how these people either rise like Olivia Hussey or Jamie Lee Curtis or fall like, you know, like the rest of them. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, Margot Kidder, you know, breaking under the Margot, breaking exactly. under the strain, you know, it's right. not yep. it's not that she's an inherently weak character. We see her presenting strength through the first yeah. part of the film. It's right. just how strong can you be? You know, right. uh, eventually when you have all this shit heaped on top of you of, you know, the ex- expectations and opinions of the outside world. And meanwhile, you're going through some internal shit. Right. How long can you stand up under that? Right. And it's not that it's a character failure of Margot Kidder's character. It's just she eventually she breaks. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Olivia Hussey, even though she's scared out of her fucking mind. Right. In the end, she picks up a poker and she's got to swing for the fences. And she's going to do it. Right. Because there's no way. How much can you take and keep moving <laughs> forward? That's right. That's right. You know, and... um and yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's sort of like, uh, I just was watching, um, uh, there's a YouTube video. There's a, there's a YouTube channel called James Whale's Bake Sale. Okay. <laughs> and, and the, it's all I've seen are little snippets of it. I have to start watching more of it, but I watched a snippet of Quentin Tarantino, uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Another cr- great Christmas horror film is one of his favorites. <laughs> And the first one or the, the first second one? one? The first one. Okay. It's okay. one of his favorites, and he mm. said a great thing that it's it's used a lot. You hear it a lot in in theater and film, um, but I I don't think enough times it gets applied. Uh, writers don't keep it in mind when they write horror, at least right now today in this mm-hmm. in this era. Show don't tell. Mm-hmm. You can show me somebody's bad like the reason why the uh spoiler alert red herring of peter works in the film in black christmas is because you're showing me who he is the entire time Mm -hmm. and when you're showing me this person that informs what i think of him and that informs the fact that i'm more willing to believe that he must be the killer Mm mm-hmm Whereas you just, you know, plastering bad all over him, paint, painting him in, in bad plaid from, sure, you know, every well angle. On him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no, Bob Clark yeah. doesn't do that. Nope. On the, on the surface, you're not totally sure if Peter is a bad guy or not. Yeah. He, he's mixed up. He's confused. It's never certain. But Part he of, shows yeah. you enough that you can think maybe he might be doing it. Right. And that is great storytelling. Yes. Yes. Yes, <laughs> it is. And, and you know, I, we got, man, we're so far into this episode and we just haven't gotten to how influential that this movie was on our favorite movie. Right. Halloween 1978. Halloween. So we, we really, yeah. Let's talk about that because we recommend everybody see the film. So you'll see all this play out and you'll see the big urban legend ending, the calls coming from inside the house and all that kind of stuff. Mm. You, you know, 
but yes, this this film was uh, groundbreaking and effective enough at, at the story that it told, even though it wasn't like some hugely massive. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it made what like four million dollars. I think I said total. Yeah, yeah. like four million worldwide on a budget of six hundred twenty thousand. That's successful. Um, yep. But Black Christmas kind of for a while, you know, it kind of disappeared from the conversation, you know, for a lot of people, but not for John Carpenter. And so this for- is also not to not to not to um, uh, interrupt you. Sorry. But this is also right before like the summer blockbuster that, you know, like with Jaws was 1975. Yeah. And people went to the movies, obviously, for years. Don't that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is when Jaws came out in 75, it sent the movie industry into a different stratosphere. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah. movies started making a lot more money, like a lot more money at a lot of people started going like that that kind of thing it just, and where you saw big kind of nationwide nationwide releases instead of markets instead know? of like local exactly yeah so yeah john carpenter was paying attention to bob clark's film and so then in 1978 four years later he gets employed to come in to make uh the babysitter murders and before yep. it became Halloween, the movie that we know and love, and it was the the idea then, because John Carpenter, being that he knows these movies and he knows about these things, he thinks, well, you know, originally that, that Black Christmas was supposed to be babysitters. Now we're actually going to do babysitters. So mm. it fits in line. Let's make it a sequel to black mm-hmm. christmas because okay we're gonna have black christmas and now halloween right and so here comes billy four years later right. and now he's come to this town and he's murdering teens who are babysitting right you know high school girls and so they were going to have the phone calls and work in all those things and but then and he even met with bob clark and talked about it and even in the course of talking to Bob Clark about the whole thing, it then over time developed, you know, because even I think, Bob, if I remember right, I think Bob Clark was even like, why would you want to do just a straight up sequel? Like, it sounds like you've got enough to work with here to to really go your own way. Right. And, and it, everybody involved in the project by that point was like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Let's... Right. You know, we we've got something here that we can do that that is going to be in the vein of Black Christmas, but mm-hmm. our our own thing. But he was very highly influenced. John Carpenter was very highly influenced by this film in the crafting of his film, down to straight up him using that same mechanism of that first person entrance the first person. of the killer. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. You know. Uh, and and using the heavy breathing, you can hear the breathing, like the heavy all breathing, the 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 tension building. Um, you know, women. Uh, you know, the the you get Jamie Lee Curtis and Olivia Hussey put in very similar situations at the end, confronted mm-hmm. with in Olivia's case, Olivia Hussey's case, who she thinks is the killer, and being right. backed into a corner. And having to defend herself, even though she's terrified, right? Um, and 
Yeah, and the the only difference between the two films is at the end of Black Christmas, which left itself open to have a sequel made. At the end of Black Christmas, it's left open. You know they haven't gotten... Well, at least you think maybe... If you think well, the Peter, phone started turning. Well, right. If you think Peter was Billy, then, you know, maybe you're super surprised. But, you know, for me, like the first time I watched it, I kind of got the idea it probably wasn't him. And mm-hmm. then the, but the phone's ringing. It, it does yep. a slow pull away from the house. Claire is still sitting Claire in that in window, the window and pulling yeah. away and the phone is ringing, Ugh. which also uh, somebody, uh, I just heard somebody say something great about this. If you remember the kind of plot mechanism of he kills and then he calls, mm-hmm. that final phone call means that Olivia Hussey is probably dead. Probably dead. Mm. So, yeah. but you don't know. But you don't know. It's left completely open. Whereas at the end, well, and but John Carpenter, Jamie Lee Curtis is very much alive, but his yep. killer gets away. But. But Michael Myers is gone, right? Yep. And and you're left it with the heavy breathing, you know, at the end. And so it's a very similar kind and of ending. We talked about yep. this same thing with Bob Clark at the end of this film, showing the silent scene of the crime, like the these this calm perusal of the crime scene, the different bedrooms where the girls had been killed, and all is now still. And all is quiet. John Carpenter, exact same thing. He's showing the house, like the the staircase, the living room, the house, the street. All is quiet. But you know he's still out there. You know that the danger is not past. Right. And you don't know when he's going to show back up. Right. And 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 both guys, you know, they're not supernatural. They're just they're just crazy nuts on the right. loose, you right. know. And and that's so yeah. No, very. Um, uh, when you watch it, if you watched Halloween first, and you haven't watched Black Christmas, or you watch Black, like if you watch Black Christmas after you watch Halloween, you go, oh, oh, oh yeah, there it is. Oh there yeah, is. there it is. So. Um, yeah, I when when I I had watched Halloween before I watched Black Christmas, so that that's how I felt. I I you instantly see it, and even on Shutter because that's where it is right now, folks. If uh, you have Shutter, which they have, um, they have I highly think recommend. they they have the original and they have the two thousand and six. The yeah, the version. remakes on here. So I, I guess if I you wanted if you wanted it. to see the twenty nineteen version, which I would I'm recommend not spending money. <laughs> yeah, I would recommend seeing it once just so you can compare. But I think it's on Peacock right now. Um, okay. If you wanted to see it, um, but be prepared because you're going to get slapped in the face with you know what they want you to see in the film. Right. <laughs> you know, you're not gonna. It's not going to tease out any deep meanings. It's going to hit you square in the nose with, "Here's what we want you to take away from this film." You right. know. Um, yeah. which, which is a, a very basically simple message of, you know, it girls, good guys, bad. I mean, that's pretty much yeah. what the 2019 one is about. Girls, good guys, bad. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, see, I don't have to see it then. You know? <laughs> 
I don't need to see it, but I'll see the I'll watch the 2006 version since it's on here. But even in the what I was going to say was even in the description uh, in Black Christmas on Shutter, it it'll say it at the bottom. It says a huge influence on John Carpenter's Halloween. Right. Like it says it right in the description. So, uh, yeah, very similar, very similar movies. So, Brad, to to wrap the episode up here in in a in a, a Christmas bow. Mm. So Black Christmas as a as a Christmas horror. Do you recommend? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I really like this movie. Um, I think that I had Black Christmas in my honorable mentions uh, I think you may I, have. I think I may. Somebody have. can correct us on that if they've listened to the episode recently. But. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll have to go back and, and no, but I've always liked this movie, um, and it, it, it it's obvious why. I mean, if Halloween is my favorite movie, how can you not like this movie? It, right. It, yeah, definite, definite, great uh, Christmas Christmas horror pick. Um, so on our next episode, we're going to continue our winter extravaganza with one of my favorite, more recent mm. Christmas films, uh, Christmas yep. horror films, Krampus. Right. Uh, I love the lore. I love the film. Um, I love the cast. It, it's well made. It's super entertaining. And please reach out to us uh, if you if you've seen Black Christmas, if you love Black Christmas. Um, or if you end up watching it for the first time because of this episode, tell us what you think about it. Nosferadudes at gmail.com. That is our, uh, our email account. Um, or reach out to us with another Christmas horror film that, that you love that maybe you don't like Black Christmas or Krampus. And um, I think we're just going to have to say we'll see you on the next episode of our winter extravaganza. So from me... And me. Thank you so much for listening to Nos Fraud Dudes. And remember, like in Black Christmas, the broadcast Ooh. is coming from inside the house. Nice. That I, was perfect. I connected it right up. Oh, you killed it. <laughs> Bravo. Thanks for listening and have a good night.